Welcome to an audio teaching from Windsor Park Baptist Church in Auckland, New Zealand. If you would like to look at the message notes or see some questions for reflection that take their lead from today's teaching, head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz and head to the online tab where you'll see services and series and you can download different resources from there. Thanks for joining us and we hope you're encouraged by today's teaching. Kia ora koutou. It's so good to be back with you today as we get back into our series, Finding God When Life is Buffering. As some of you will know, I've been away for the last couple of weeks in Tahiti with the New Zealand Under-19 football team. It was a great time. The team achieved our goal of qualifying for the Under-20 World Cup and winning the tournament. And I'm in two weeks in Tahiti for a football tournament. It's a tough job, but someone's got to do it. Yeah. I won't rub it in with any travel picks, but I did want to pick up on one thing that ties into what we're going to talk about today. The way the tournament works is that the top two teams qualify for the World Cup, which means that the semi-final is the big game. Win that and you're going to the World Cup. Lose and you miss out on your dream. Having already missed out on the under-17 cycle due to COVID, for most of these players, this was their only opportunity to make it to an age group World Cup. Safe to say there was a lot of pressure on the young players for that game. In a meeting the night before the game, the coach talked about embracing pressure and went through some content prepared by a sports psychologist. I can't show the whole diagram, but one of the flowcharts that was used went a bit like this. Stress and pressure as a stimulus, which creates a perceived threat to identity. We then tell ourselves a story, and from there we generate a response, either positive or negative. Now, what really stood out to me as I was preparing this sermon over there was the recognition in this environment of the importance of identity. The possibility of losing this game created a perceived identity threat. Who am I if we lose this game and fail to qualify for the World Cup? This is so relevant for our discussion today. See, we all care about our identity, what those around us think of us, what we've achieved, how we stack up against others. And I'm sure we've all had days that leave us questioning our worth. And it's likely that a lot of these questions surface during the buffering times in life. When we're keeping busy, ticking along and making progress, we may be able to ignore these questions or find temporary security in our achievements. But then something happens and we're no longer upwardly mobile. Maybe we've stalled or are going backwards. Perhaps we lose a job, our health deteriorates, or a relationship breaks down. It's then that the who am I question gets pretty loud, even deafening. When the busyness and noise stop, the accomplishments and applause dry up, and we're adrift in the desert of unproductivity and obscurity. Who are we then? That's what we're going to talk about today. How do we find our identity in the wilderness? And as a case study, we'll look at Jesus and how he navigated these issues during the period from his baptism and the temptation in the desert. We'll start by joining him in the Jordan River as we read from Matthew 3, verses 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, 
he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Who remembers what PDA stands for? I remember in school and especially in youth group settings, there were rules about what was appropriate PDA. If you saw a young couple at a youth camp holding hands, hugging, or worse, kissing, the typical response was, yuck, PDA. If you have no idea what I'm on about, PDA stands for a public display of affection. Now, I think it's fair to say that at Jesus' baptism, we see a moment of appropriate Trinitarian PDA, a public display of the affection of the Father for the Son in the manifest presence of the Holy Spirit. It's hard to put into words how significant this moment must have been for Jesus as he prepared to start his earthly ministry. And the striking thing here is that from a worldly perspective, Jesus had achieved next to nothing at this point. He had no ministry. He had no followers. He performed no miracles. He had been sent to rescue the world and had seemingly wasted 30 years, which for those of you like me who enjoy numbers would end up being over 90% of his earthly life. Yet it's at this point that the father chooses to publicly declare, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Do you ever feel like you haven't achieved much? That you're wasting time waiting for a sense of calling? That you're underachieving? I definitely have waves of these feelings, but God's affirmation of Jesus's identity here are so encouraging for us because if we believe in Jesus, we are also children of God. This is our identity in Christ. You are a child and not a slave, loved for who you are and not what you achieve. This is the river moment, a public display of affection. But Jesus didn't live his life in the comfort of the river and nor will we. Now we're ready to move with Jesus from the river of affirmation to the desert of temptation. And we pick up in Matthew 4, continuing straight on in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you were the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and attended him. The first thing that we notice here is that Jesus is not led into the wilderness by the devil or even of his own desire. It's the spirit that leads him into the desert. Strange as it seems, this detour is part of the plan. 
The Greek word that's often translated as wilderness or desert here is eremos, which can mean a des deserted or barren place. After waiting 30 years to get to his public ministry and then having his big confirmation, Jesus is now led directly into the middle of nowhere. Perhaps it would be a bit like the new King Charles, waiting his whole life to become king, being confirmed, having his coronation, and then spending the first 40 days of his reign in Palmerston North. Just kidding, of course, I love Palmy, but do you understand uh, this picture, how crazy and unstrategic it is? And a really important question for us to ask is why? Why does God lead Jesus by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted? Why is it so important that all the synoptic gospels include it? And another hypothetical question is what might Jesus' ministry look like if he hadn't started with this desert season? If he had gone straight from his baptism to the big crowds and the miracles? I think these are key questions for us to sit with as we navigate our own wilderness and as we continue to see the avalanche of Christian and secular leaders falling from grace. Back in the wilderness and with Jesus isolated, having fasted for 40 days, the devil senses his opportunity. As he did in the Garden of Eden, he appears and seeks to sabotage God's plans. If he can cause Jesus to sin, he'll be victorious. This is his big moment. So what is his strategy? What are his tactics? What game plan does he opt for in this big encounter with Jesus? The devil focuses his attack around identity. The verses earlier, three verses earlier, God had publicly pronounced Jesus as his beloved son. Now in the desert, the devil questions his identity. Look at the first two temptations, and they both start the exact same way. If you are the son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. In all his temptations, the devil seeks to get Jesus to find his identity somewhere other than his relationship with the father. Omri Nouwen suggests that the three temptations represent the three false sources of identity the world offers all of us. To turn the stones into bread is to be relevant, to provide for one's own needs. This is the belief that we are what we do. To jump from the temple is to be spectacular, to put on a show and gain a crowd. And the underlying belief is that we are what others think of us. And to bow down to the devil in order to gain power is the final temptation which now and suggests that the core lie is that we are what we have. The world still sells us these same three lies in different forms. I am what I do, what I achieve in my work, what grades I get in my studies, how well I excel in my art or my sport, even what I achieve for God or for the church, or I am what others think of me. Believing this leads us to people pleasing and reputation management, saying and doing whatever will appease others because our deepest fear is that someone might not like us. Or I am what I have, the experiences and pleasures that I can accumulate, the perfect house, perfect family, the batch, the car, the status or power that I possess. We are all surrounded by voices, the world, our own sinful desires, the devil, and they tell us to find our identity and security in these things. So how do we resist? Let's look at how Jesus, let's look at Jesus' defense strategy. At each turn, Jesus quotes scripture to refute the devil. Man shall not live on bread alone, 
but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All the verses specifically focus on God. They are redirecting devotion and worship to the Father. The devil tempts Jesus to step outside of God's will for him. But taken together, we could sum up Jesus' responses as something like this. Even though I've not yet started my formal ministry, and I've now been fasting in obscurity for 40 days, I believe that God meant it when he called me the beloved. I have nothing to prove. I trust that he is sufficient for me, and I'm going to do this his way. No shortcuts. If the river scene was PDA, then this is PBA, a private belief in affection. This is the real challenge for us. When we're waiting and when life is buffering, when God seems to be out of office, do we choose to believe what he says about us? Cast your mind back to when you're in the early stage of a relationship. At the start, everything was bliss. Perhaps you even enjoyed some PDA to the disgust of those around you. And at that time, you knew how your partner felt about you. Then perhaps one of you went away for a long period of time, or you had to go a long distance relationship. And the texts and calls become less frequent, and you start to wonder whether they still feel the same way about you. Well, maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but God's feelings towards us don't change. Whether it's publicly displayed or privately believed, in the progress and the buffering, highs and lows, in the river and in the desert, his feelings and promises don't change. Can we maintain a belief in who we are in him, even when we don't feel it? I love how John Mark Comer sums this up so simply. Don't doubt in the desert what God said in the river. If you're in that desert season, believe that what God said about you is true. So how do we hold on to truth when we're assailed by lies in the wilderness? Jesus models the perfect defense against the devil's lies. And we can sum it up with three R's. Firstly, recognize the lie. This will often be tied to identity. When you're tempted, ask yourself, what is the identity lie I'm being sold? Is it about what I do, what others think of me, or what I have? The first step is to recognize the lie for what it is. And then second, resist the lie. Just as Jesus, just as Jesus did, quote scripture, refocus on God, and ultimately believe that you are who he says you are, and that his way is best. Someone far smarter than me who unfortunately I can't remember said that ultimately all sin is a failure to believe that God wants what is best for me. If we can recognize and resist the lie, then we get to the final R, reinforce the truth. In Luke's account of the desert temptations, Jesus enters full of the Holy Spirit, but leaves in the power of the Spirit. There's a progression there. By resisting the devil's lies, he has been strengthened. Perhaps this is part of the reason he was sent to the wilderness and why are we are as well. Each time we choose to believe that we are who God says we are, that truth sinks deeper into us. So how do we find identity in the wilderness? Well, it's a bit of a trick question because we already have it. God affirms each of us as we are. Even if you've never come to faith in Christ, you are made in his image and he wants to welcome you home and call you child. In the wilderness, the devil questions our identity, but we don't have to prove ourselves or create a self-made sense of worth. Our only job is to cultivate a deep belief and security in the identity we already have as children of God. 
We're going to land this service with a time of communion. And this is an opportunity for us to confess where we've tried to find identity outside of Jesus. Where we've believed the lies of the tempter instead of the truth of the Father. This may have resulted in sins of action or of inaction, of impure words or thoughts. It may be that we realize that even some of the good that we do has come from selfish motives. Let us allow the Spirit to bring conviction and to confess freely to the Father, knowing that as we take the bread and the cup, we remember Jesus, who came and was tempted, yet remained sinless, then gave up his life to pay the price for our sin. And having confessed our sins, let us take time to sit with the Father and listen for his voice. As you take communion, we're going to listen to, here's my heart. Offer God your heart, and as the song says, allow him to speak what is true. Listen for the voice that says, you are my daughter, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And when you hear that voice, don't discount it. Don't disqualify yourself from it. Let us allow that truth to sink deep into the core of who we are, so that wherever we find ourselves, river or wilderness, our lives would flow from the secure identity that God has already granted us in His Son, Jesus. You are love, 
Thank you for joining our audio teaching today. If there are ways that we can continue to support you or help you in your journey, please reach out to us. Head to our website, windsorpark.org.nz, and you'll find various ways to contact us. God bless.